Welcome. You are now listening to episode 28 of the City Image Podcast. You guys should already know who I am. I'm Bryant, the Theological Giant. Blessed, been doing well, surviving by the grace of God, getting his money to his glory. <laughs> um, yeah, man, I'm hoping, I'm praying that everybody under the sound of my voice is experiencing the grace of God as well. We've got a very, very, very thought-stimulating uh, episode lined up for you today. We had the distinct honor to interview Jonathan Walton, who is the author of a book called 12 Lies That Hold America Captive and The Truth That Sets Us Free. Uh, it's a challenging book that basically unpacks a lot of how our worldview has been impacted by our experiences living in this country. And much of what passes itself for Christianity is actually American folk religion. It's actually a replacement of our identity in Christ with something that's much more cultural and actually mired in sin. And so it's actually very related to conversations we've had on this show about white evangelicalism. And uh, I think that Walt Jonathan adds a very um, sharp uh, commentary to a lot of what we see uh, in this country. So uh, Jonathan, more about him. He is the ministry director for InterVarsity, which is a campus ministry in the New York, New Jersey area. And his book, 12 Lies, hit number one on the political philosophy list on Amazon. So I can't wait for you to hear this interview. Interview was conducted by Andy, a.k.a. Young Nassau County, and Varlene, we know her as the Wild Thornberry. So sit back, be blessed. You are now listening to the City Image Podcast. So the 12 lives that uh, holds America captive. Um, you mm -hmm. went off in this book, like, Oh, you snapped, bro. You like, snapped. Like, oh. Like, oh. What, like, what's going on? Like, I was just like, every time I was just like, mm, mm, ooh, okay. <laughs> like, what has the reception been um, with this book? Man, first off, thanks for having me and having this conversation. I like that question um, because, because I go to New Life Fellowship in Queens, you know, huge focus on emotionally healthy spirituality. I remember doing this marriage counseling session, super intense, trying to love my wife better, trying to love me, and we're both messed up and everything. And at the end of this weekend, they said that if I had on a t-shirt, it would say, I'm angry and I'm okay. <laughs> right? Like that would be, that would be the thing. And I was like, what if I was comfortable with being angry and doing conflict? And doing, I mean, obviously doing conflict in a healthy way. I think the reception from the book when I, I had like 60 or 70 people read it, um, like the read the manuscript and the, the highest uh, comments that came back was that it was biblical, which was great. But like everyone that they were like, this, this is going to be a problem. And so I'll be like straight up with you. There were two. I, I don't know the names of people because I did that on purpose, but I had demographics of people. Yeah. And the 
older than 50 from the South, white males said this book should be read individually, not with a group and not spread around. Really? Really? Why, yeah. why and I think, that was their response? What was behind that? Well, I think, I mean, I, I have some assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly because I think that the way that certain ethnic groups, certain cultural groups, certain locations in this country, like if you check off all the boxes, there are certain ways that we deal with conflict and certain ways that we don't. Mm-hmm. And certain ways that we're willing to engage in certain ways that we're not willing to engage in. I think that I can't, because like we've been doing work on emotionally healthy activism and stuff like that, um, out of emotionally healthy spirituality, I can, if I'm having a conversation with someone, I don't need to ask them if they're willing or not willing to go to a protest. Mm. I just need to ask them how their mom and dad did conflict. I, we could have a conversation about climate change, but I really just need to ask you how you're like, what were the values in your household? Right. And like, unless those, unless you've done significant work to change that stuff, you're li- we are literally just carrying what our mom and daddy gave us. You know, to answer your question, the reception has been good from the people that I thought it would be good for and hard from the people that I thought it would be hard for. Like, I wish that I was wrong, but I'm, I'm not. And yeah. that's okay. Well, definitely want to peel that back um, later in the interview. But before we get into that, man, like, mm-hmm. you know, for our audience... Uh, Jonathan has written a book. It's centered around this thesis of white American folk religion. And so just just to open up this idea, what is American folk religion? Yeah. So, um, man, that's a big question. I'm going to try to break it up. Um, so like white American folk religion, I want you to imagine, and I use this, this metaphor in the book of like the air that we breathe. Um, but I'll couch it in Daniel. So I want you to imagine that you're a kid, you're really smart, and all of a sudden this empire comes, kidnaps you, changes your name, puts you, you know, kills other folks around you, takes you away, changes your name, changes the names of all your friends, and tells you this is what you're going to worship, this is how you're going to work, this is how you're going to serve, these are the clothes you're going to wear, this is your job, bam, like you're, you're Babylonian now, right? And like, that has happened in the same way to every single person that is that is in America now and lives downstream of American influence and empire around the world, right? Because like Native people did not opt into this experiment, mm. right? Immigrants, like when they got to quote unquote Ellis Island and your name was really long because you were Polish, right? And then it got, oh, well, let me cut off this and cut off that. Now your name is Jackie, right? Yeah. They were, like, Wait, that, that's, not, that's not actually who they are, but you're given a new identity. And like, I think, what's the guy's name? He just wrote a book called Postcards from Babylon. And he talks about how like America is four things. It's a, it's a religion. It's a, it's a nation. It's an identity, like all, and then he lists one more. But I think what I'm focusing on is that we were actually, we, quote unquote, everyone who inhabits this country now, and those who came before us were actually invited into a new identity. And that's the exact same thing that happens when we decide to follow Jesus. Hmm. You're invited into a new identity. So um, there's an invention of whiteness. There's an invention of America. And it's, 
I say folk religion because folk co-opts a, a genuine faith and then masquerades as the real thing. And mm. then reli- religion, because there's a set of, san- of standards and practices that say, hey, I'm in this group. Yeah. Right. And so like white is a made up thing. There are no white people in heaven. There are no black people in heaven, but they exist in America because we needed a racial assignment to, to, to elevate one group and subjugate another group because we had to create a new identity. And so you and I, whatever ethnic groups that we came from, like there was a culture, there was a language, there was a system, there's a structure of how we did things. And when our ancestors came to America, they received different assignments and identities. And that's yeah. the exact same thing that happens when you decide to become a Christian. So white American folk religion is, I think, the ethos that's operating around us at all times. When we become a Christian, we can't actually operate in a white, race-based, class-based, gender-based system. And American, right, the, the racism, the militarism, the materialism, the, sex, the sexual ethic that runs our country, and we can't actually operate in a folk religion. Like that's not actually what we're called to do because we're not defined by the things that we do. We're actually defined by who we are. And those who follow Jesus are actually children of the light, not children of the darkness. So we function differently. That's white American folk religion. Yeah, yeah. You know, as I was reading the book, you know, cause we, we've talked about quote white evangelicalism quite a bit um, on City Image, but I thought it was very helpful that you actually parsed out a whole new classification of a religion for this um, notion because it's extremely helpful for Mm -hmm. folks to see that the Christianity and really the spiritual culture that's been handed down for them is not what Jesus offered. (laughs) From your background that you lay out in the book, um, you coming from rural Virginia and then Mm -hmm. uh, up to Columbia university and now living in Jackson Heights, which is the most diverse uh, neighborhood in the country. Is that, that's correct, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So obviously you've had a lot of different experiences in different settings in our country. Tell us a bit about how your background um, led you up to this book and the book's conclusions. The longest chapter in the book is like, we are a Christian nation as a lie. Um, because I think again, couching in Daniel I didn't know that like the invitation when I left Columbia was to be an ambassador for a new kingdom. Mm. Right. So if we, if we think about the the history of why quote unquote, like racially assigned black people moved from the South to urban centers, it was for an opportunity to pursue the American dream, not the kingdom of God. Right. It was, it was for the opportunity to, get economic prosperity, uh, safety, stability, and security um, from financial um, enrichment, right? So like that, like that is what happened. We didn't get to do it as slaves, so now we're gonna do it as citizens. And so that is why people left the South. And similarly, that's why I left, was to quote unquote, get out. But when I, when I got to Columbia, because I think the changes for me in my life have been stark, there was no gradual change in a lot of the changes I've had in my life. So I've had to wrestle more than most, I think, because I've had to figure out how to survive alone. So when I, when I grew up, I had two parents and then very abruptly, I just had 
one parent because I cut myself off from one because of the the choices that my dad made, right? Yeah. Um, so the start changed. And then when I left Virginia, I'd never left Virginia before, go to New York. And again, I'm by myself. I show up off the bus, I'm alone, you know? Um, and similarly, when I moved to Queens, um, it was like, I'm there to get, you know, I was really trying to figure out how to love my wife well um, by like tell, showing her dad I was, I was serious by moving closer to spend more time with them. But the reality was I was doing these things alone. Like the community that I had in the Heights, where I lived in Washington Heights before, I was leaving to try and create a new family. Um, but like all of these changes, I unfortunately had to do by myself. Yeah. And I think um, when you're forced to figure out how to survive, um, and I do think it was very much a survival thing that then I think that that forces reflection and learning if we're open to that. And because I'm also at the university, I have to do it. So it's good to do that. Yeah. When we see the whole like the white American folk religion. When you say right. we, who are you talking about? So black folk. So, yes, um, yeah. So like a lot of black folk uh, get introduced to Christianity um, in a way that really represents what you're talking about in the book, which is like white American folk religion. And so a lot of the time pass up like Christianity as a whole and they reject it, which is now you have like a lot of religions like the five percenters or you have like the black mm-hmm. Israelites. And so like how do you think white folk uh, white American folk religion has hurt our gospel witness and, and the church in the US? <sighs> oh Jesus. Okay. So uh, that's a lot. I'm gonna try to parse it out. Um to the first part of what you were saying about Five percenters, Black Israelites, uh, Zulu Nation, factology, all of that around like, quote unquote, racially assigned Black folks in this country. Um, I think the reason that that's attractive is because of a conversation I had with a young man who is in the Nation of Islam um, when I was 23 years old. So one of my good friends wanted me to meet him because he was going through a rough time, but he was part of the Nation of Islam. And we sat down across the table from each other and he said to me, you need to join Nation of Islam. I said, okay, great. Thank you for that forceful invitation. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> and I said, why? And then he said, because you are a God. You, and then he went, launched into this diatribe about my history and my identity. Um, and so I said, thank you so much. What I said, can I ask you some questions? He said, yes. I said, where do you live? He said, with my mom. I said, do you have a job? He said, no. I said, do you have a girlfriend? He said, no. I said, are you in school right now? He said, no. I said, if I were you and I was unemployed, living in my mama's house as a black man in East Harlem, and someone came and told me that I was a god and gave me a history that I did not get from my mother and my father and my ancestors, I think I would want to join your group too. I think that like the reason that those things are attractive. Um, and I, and I, and I like, I mean, there's a scene in Malcolm X when Malcolm X is standing outside, or I mean, Denzel Washington, Malcolm X is standing outside of a building. And I don't remember exactly the conversation, but there's just maybe 40 men lined up standing there and he points, they turn and they all walk. Right. Um, and I think that kind of power, that type of influence, that type of 
elevation and leadership and clear demarcation um, of how you can ascend and things like that is attractive to people who have been systematically disempowered for generations, right? right? Um, and so I think that's one reason why, particularly in prison, like Black American men convert to Islam or convert to um, Nation of Islam or something like that, because there's these clear ways of attaining power, influence, and leadership, especially for men. Yeah, the second part of your question, at least from my perspective of how the how that compromises the gospel has been true since, um, I mean, since the gospel was like co-opted by Constantine to control the early church, mm. right? So this isn't a new thing, right? Like it's like Constantine um, gathering the apostles together and saying, now you get together and do this, like we're all going to become Christian. And then all of a sudden, like the state is aligned with, Christianity, like Christianity becomes a thing, um, that's when I think we have some issues. So similarly in China right now, you have state churches. Or when I was, you know, the, the town that I grew up in, about 35 miles away, there was a church where Black folks would gather and there was a white pastor and there would be white monitors for the last 150 years. The church was burned down twice when mm. they preached things that were too incendiary. Right. You've got a, a slave Bible that exists where they take out passages that are revolutionary. I think the exact same things that have happened a long time ago are the same things that are happening right now. And I think there's three ways that that happens. First, you change the scripture. So you change the scripture to adapt to the culture, whether it be the interpretation of the scripture, whether it be the literally the word, the words that are printed. The second thing you do um, after you change the scripture, that you force the church leaders to adapt to the culture of the day. So whether it be apartheid in South Africa, um, or you have the um, the papal bulls that came out justifying Manifest Destiny, justifying mm. the doctrine of discovery, right? Like you get the leaders to do it um, and then create theology around it. Um, and then the last thing is like, it's actually socially reinforced. Yeah. So. Dominique Gilliard talks about this in um, Rethinking Incarceration, where it's like people go to church and then they go watch a lynching. Hmm. Like, to say, like I, I think it's hard for people to wrap their minds around the fact that, like, this wasn't that long ago. And our family and colleagues and classmates, parents, or us, like, were involved in things like this. And so... Yeah, like change the scripture, get the leaders on board, and then it's socially enforced by the congregants that they lead. So that that's how I think it compromises the gospel witness, because they you take away the witnesses that people experience every day, you take away the leaders that people um, are looking up to, and then you change what the word says. So there it really isn't even a place to go back to, or even the interpretation of it. Um, so yeah. Why do you think American Christianity does a poor job at like seeing things at a systemic level? Like, how did America get to this point? <laughs> so there's this guy. Um, I don't know if it's Greg Boyd or Walter Boogerman or people who've been writing this, write about this stuff for a long time, but they basically said like America has hypocrisy baked into its DNA. Right. Like he said, like, we've been we've been doing this from the beginning. Like, I, I don't I 
I don't think we can acknowledge it because we've never acknowledged it. Like, so for example, um, De Las Casas was a, uh, a Jesuit priest in the 1500s and he had deep feelings towards the native people and wanted to see them set free. So then he created documents to go to say, hey, go and enslave Africans, don't enslave native peoples, wow. right? So he was a slave owning Jesuit priest, wow. right? Um, you've got like people like von Humboldt, who's like this uh, Prussian, which is like some part of Germany now, like Prussian diplomat, 31 years old, comes to America, doesn't know if he's like European or uh, American, but like holds up these ideals and he meets Thomas Jefferson. He's an abolitionist. He meets Thomas Jefferson and he doesn't oppose Thomas Jefferson about slavery because Thomas Jefferson is going to give him access to all the scientific research and stuff that he wants to see happen. Mm. Right. Like George Washington and the quote unquote founders of the country are sitting there writing about freedom and writing about justice and using these big terms when there are slaves around them and there are no poor people and no women in the room. And if they are, they're property. We've, we've never been able to, um, what I frame as lament, confess, repent, and reconcile. We've never been able to do that. Can you unpack that? Because you actually have an appendix where you, you walk the reader through a way to process these issues in mm-hmm. a way. Can you walk us through that lament, uh, confess, and repent? Um, walk, walk us through that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take, for example, like the situations that are happening at the border, the anti-lynching bill that there are evangelical groups that want to strip protections to the LGBT community out of that. Um, police brutality, like the Me Too movement, pick the box, right? All mm-hmm. of us are like oppressing some other group of people or represent the oppressor in some way, right? I think if we're ever going to like enter into the pain and struggle of the other, we, we have to lament. So I actually have to say what you're going through is painful. What you're going through is hard. It's sad. It's difficult. I hear you. I see you. Like, and that sucks. We actually have to do that. If we don't do that, then our confession, which usually comes out as, I'm sorry you feel that way, which actually isn't confession. Hmm. Like if I don't, if I don't actually enter into your pain and take responsibility for how me or my people or what I represent participated in that, then I can't validate your pain. Mm. I yeah. can't actually, I can't actually come alongside you. Right. And yeah. so genuine lament leads to honest confession, meaning like, I am so sorry that that happened. Would you please forgive me when I'm talking to my wife and I've said something that dishonored her or hurt her or when I'm sitting across from a woman who's been raped and abused and she says, hey, Jonathan, I can't listen to what you're saying because the man who raped me looks like you. I have, I have two options in that moment. I could choose the gospel of America or I could choose the gospel of Jesus. Now, the gospel of America says, but that wasn't me. I'm different. Look at what, like, I'm Jonathan. Look, look, look at my history. Like, let me start to justify my existence before you and why I should still have credibility in front of you. And instead of saying that, I say, I'm so sorry that that man cat called you, that that person raped you, that that person showed up at your house, right? I'm so sorry that you can't sleep in your bed without your dog because somebody crawled through your window that looks like me, mm. right? 
Like, these are real conversations. And so I say, I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And, and men who have done this and continue to do this, I am so sorry. Right? So yeah. there's confession. And my corporate confession is not part of the American narrative. We won't do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's, even though it's in scripture all the time, all the time, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? It's plural. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so we, like, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, you hit on a, just a bigger thing where we've completely uh, read the Bible through an individualistic lens, whether it's dealing with corporate uh, confession or even like seeing systemic justice issues. What would you say, like you were just on the Eric Metaxas show you know, I, it hasn't come out yet. I can only imagine how that conversation went, but just playing devil's advocate, what would you say to someone that would say talking about these systemic justice issues is just the church selling out to American like liberal ideology in the same way that, you know, I mean, the examples that we're just talking about, a lot of people would say, okay, well, you know, evangelicals are co-opting American conservatism. But, but, but what would you say to someone, as you're mentioning all those issues, Me Too movement, mm. the wall, right. what would you say to someone who's saying, oh, he's, he's just taking these liberal issues up and he's just co-opting them and, you know, running with it in, in Jesus' name? <laughs> well, okay. I'd, I'd say quite a few things if I didn't follow Jesus. But because I want to follow <laughs> Jesus, here's what I want to say. Um, First off, like the the lament, confess, repent, like that whole deal is in the book. Folks can go read it if there's questions about it. Like we can talk about it some more. And so to that second question you had, it is a work of the Holy Spirit to create the space for people to have compassion. Um, it's a work of the Holy Spirit for people to love deeply and listen well. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, not a convincing or persuasive argument that allows us to enter in the way that that jesus modeled like step out of heaven putting on flesh and becoming like us right and so what i would say to someone who came back at me with points like that um is i would say hey i'm wondering what your hopes are for our interaction and for the words that we share because if i know what their hopes and intentions are then i engage differently I've, I've fielded conversations like this around like pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel people or vice versa. I've fielded conversations like this around like, quote unquote, blue lives, all lives, black lives matter, me too. Like it's all the same. Like what is the what is the hope? What do you hope for our interaction right now? And what do you hope for us and our relationship? Mm. Like if I know what that is then we can have a conversation. And most people haven't actually thought about it because they just externalizing their own pain onto mm. you because you represent that stuff. So that's what happens to me a lot. Yeah. And what, what, I've, what I've started to do, and this is a recent thing because the book came out and there's more people that want to have these types of arguments, yeah, um, yeah. is like, hey, I ask that question. And then I say, so... I would love for you to work that out in a diverse community that you can actually walk alongside. Mm -hmm. I am tired of doing that for yeah. strangers. 
yeah, right? Yeah. Like I, I and, like, and like, and for my own mental, physical, spiritual, emotional health, I'm going to go do that with my community. I appreciate the things that you said. God bless you. Go do that. Because I don't, I don't think I can argue white supremacists into loving black people. Yeah. I don't think I can do that. Come you know, on. like, it's not gonna, you know, I can't argue a man into tearing down patriarchy. I can't do it. He just has to have a daughter or what are like, and like, and like actually recognize the hypocrisy and calling a woman uh, a bitch and then having a daughter right beside him. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. And that's what happened to me. Like, I recognize the hypocrisy in my own life and that turned me into someone who wants to elevate women the way I want people to advocate for black. I love that you said that, man, because I feel like, you know, one of the big things that you are now talking about and starting a conversation about is, uh, is emotional health in activism and approaching social issues, not just with like precision and good arguments, but actually approaching it from a place where we're not just oversimplifying things because of our own pain or, you know, being reactionary. Is there any word you would have for folks who are listening on how to approach these issues with an emotionally healthy framework? And is there any resources that you'd point them to for that? Uh, everything that Pete Scazzaro does is helpful. And so Pete Scazzaro and Jerry Scazzaro, um, New Life Fellowship in Queens are kind of the, the birthplace of emotionally healthy activism. For me, particularly because they come out of emotionally healthy discipleship, which is the paradigm there they created. Emotional health is not a new thing. Like people have been thinking about boundaries and Sabbath and all these things for generations, right? Yeah. Um, but I think this is the, in my, in my assumption and assessment, this is the first time it's like kind of pushing into evangelicalism. Um, which is why most healthy spirituality, I think, is getting more traction. Um, and so I would say emotionally healthy leader and emotionally healthy discipleship, that book and that course are like really, really helpful. Um, the step after that, I would say, is um, we're actually going to run a course in the spring called Emotionally Healthy Activist that starts in March. And so people will be able to subscribe on Patreon and like see our videos and then sign up for a discussion. And so there'll be a a class that they can watch, discussion stuff that comes from that. And then a podcast that actually answers the questions that they ask the following week for Mm -hmm. eight weeks. Um, So like I'm taking Pete Cazero's stuff and applying it to activism. And so, so for example, um, if, I, 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 some of those elements are actually in the appendices and the questions in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what was your dominant emotion as you were reading this chapter? Like, that's a question. It comes from, yeah, it comes from emotionally healthy spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for me, like, just a clear thing for an activist right now is I would say, do you regularly feel seen, heard, felt, valued, trusted, celebrated? validated like if you feel that way mm. on a regular basis then it, it could completely change the way you protest it completely changes the way you engage with people who are angry with you or you're angry with right it's huge i might yeah like i might still go to the protest but like i'm not there to get like social validation yeah i'm not there to feel a part of a group like 
all of those things I can get from God and the body of Christ. Right. That, that feeling of being seen and heard and validated and valued and trusted and celebrated like, and belonging, like I can get that from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if I move from that place of wholeness, then that completely changes how I engage with a white, a white supremacist or a, an anarchist or whoever. Yeah. Because I, I'm not, I, I'm not looking for justification from them. I'm not looking for them to pat me on the back and tell me I'm valuable. I'm literally just there for them, with them, in God. Yeah. Um, and that changes resistance. So skills like emotional healthy leader. Then there's some great books like Brene Brown stuff around shame. I think is really helpful. She has a couple books out now. Um, and then Walter Brueggemann's book, Sabbath as Resistance, I think is really good. Um, particularly because like, I, I am quote unquote, an activist just by saying I follow Jesus. Mm. Mm. Just, like just by saying I follow Jesus, like I, I am saying I'm going to resist the patterns of the world and be transformed by the renewing of my mind, Romans 12, 1. Like, that is, that's yeah. what's happening. Like, you know, and yeah. so my activism, like, is not, you know, created uh, how many Facebook posts I have or how many T-shirts I have or, like, how many times I throw up Wakanda to sign when I go somewhere. Like, like I'm an activist because I've decided to follow Jesus. Um, and I hope that, that those, those few resources, our course, um, obviously, there's great folks to follow online, like Brandon Miller, who's on staff with InterVarsity, but also writes for the Huffington Post. I think there's great conversations. Um, they're being led by people like Alexia Silva-Tierra out in California. Um, so, yeah, those are some folks that people can gravitate towards. That's great, man. Thank you. So in the book, you say you talk about the differences between like life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness offered by America than that offered yeah. by and so like yeah. why do you believe that the american dream is so idolatrous oh man because it works for some people okay. come on come on like, like listen i grew like i was I, I used to be a motivational speaker right so i was the dude that they called into the auditorium they got the assembly together and told you to work hard because you can make it like i did that was me Right. I was an ambassador for the hardworking black person that made it out of a broken home to an Ivy League school on scholarship. And all of you could do that. Right. That, that was until I went and spoke at a prison. And I was like. These kids, because they were kids in the juvenile facility, these were boys in Miami that were yet to go to the adult prison. So they were going to be in prison for a while. And I'm like, here I am saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. When in reality, there's no resources allocated for their continued education. Right. There's nothing, like, there's, like, the system, the people watching them are not set up for their flourishing and redemption. Like, they're in a room to be controlled and contained mm. for the duration, right? Um and so there isn't a level of hard work and dedication and pursuing this life that's going to actually give them freedom. Right. And yeah. so I, I realized very quickly that like, Oh, this is not 
but you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me on the bottom of my shoes or on my eyebrow, like on my, you know, under my eyes for a football game. Like this is not that. Cause when Paul wrote that he was in prison, mm. like, so what, what is that gospel? Mm. Right. And so that's where I think, and I'm, yeah, actually Eric Metaxas did bring up this point when we were talking because I said very clearly, like pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as offered by America and taking up your cross, denying yourself and following Jesus are antithetical to one another. Um, I think the issue is that it works for some people hmm. and the marketing is amazing. So right. for example, like Barack Obama was president and I can think to myself, man, Black folks have made it somewhere. Hmm. The problem with that is all the statistics and stories don't actually say that yeah. at all. <laughs> you know, and so um, there's a, there is a such thing as like vertical change, right? Where you have a couple people ascend to some sort of power, but that horizontal transformation is what the kingdom actually offers, hmm. where everybody gets it, not just some folks. And like, man, Marlene, it'd be great if I could give everybody what I got, but I can't do that. <laughs> you know, it's, I can't. It's like the only person that can do that is Jesus. And America is not interested in everybody getting everything. Mm. They're not. Which is why we don't have healthcare, which is why we don't have access to education, which is why we don't have access to clean water, which is why we don't have, like, the list is long. Uh, but the world, like the United States, and the propagation of the American mentality to every place around the world where we rule and reign. And note, like we have over 2,000 military bases. We have like crazy amounts of influences on all this. Like it's crazy. We're the largest empire ever. Like the places downstream of our influence are set up like plantations. So let's be clear. Like it's set up like a plantation. On a plantation, what you have are people who work and people who watch other people work and yeah. people who don't work at all. Yeah. And that is what we have. And we've set that up everywhere. And then yeah. we make fancy names for it, like economics. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like industrialization. Yeah. Right? Like the, the, the path towards like macro economies. Like we, we, like we set it up and make it sound really good, but it's all just slavery. Wow. Like it's still yeah. slavery, right? So that's, yeah, I, I don't, that, that's why I think like my life that's abundant in America is built off of exploitation in China from electronics, exploitation from Africa from raw, raw resources, and exploitation of female bodies around the world. That mm -hmm. is how my quote unquote life is abundant in America as a man. That is not in line with the kingdom at all. And I think like one of the things for me and like everything you're saying is like, I'm hit, like I practice this stuff too, you know, like I've, and I'm, mm -hmm. I, I believe these things sometimes and it's just like, whoa, like this is crazy that like I actually have fallen prey to um, these ideologies. And like, my next question is like, how does Jesus save you from this white folk religion? And what does he offer you have fallen prey to, to, to this? Oh um, man, Jesus, Jesus is everything. He's everything, Raleigh. I'm going to try to make it not ambiguous. Um, so <laughs> Romans, Romans 3.23, right? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If that's true, then everyone's indicted, right? That means 
that there is no like, oh, I'm just the oppressed or I'm just the oppressor, right? It's we're all of it all the time. Um, and I think we are constantly looking for a perfect leader, which is why we're like, oh, Bill Cosby, Bill Cosby is this great person. Oh, no, he did this, cut him out, gone, right? Oh, no, like, like we we're constantly looking for a perfect person to put in the seat that never did anything wrong, mm-hmm. right? And that person doesn't exist unless the person you're talking about is Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, like, that is why he is the Messiah. So, Romans 3.23, we have all sinned, but there is a spotless lamb, right? There is someone worthy of opening the scroll, Romans, I mean, Revelation 5 through 8, right? There is someone. His name is Jesus, right? So I think in him, we have an example of what we're supposed to do. So like, one, we don't have to be the Messiah because we have one. His name's Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that like, I think we value salvation more than we do sanctification. Mm. So, so salvation is a wonderful thing, but just like a wedding, right? Like a wedding is a moment. A marriage is a lifetime. So similarly, sanctification is a process that we are constantly going through the rest of our lives. So when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, like we work, we are working on it all the time by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you and I are going to discover regularly that we have sinned. Therefore, we regularly go and repent and talk about and talk with Jesus and engage with God and talk with community, um, confess our sins to one another that we might be forgiven, all that stuff, so that we're reminded that Jesus is Lord and we're not. Because, and one of the things that I think is, is, uh, is, is crazy is the last thing is that like, if Jesus is the Messiah and we're not, then we don't have to be perfect, which is great. And then if we value sanctification just as much as we do salvation, then it's impossible to be prideful. Mm. And judge other people. Huge. So, like, if Jesus is the Messiah, we we value sanctification, then we're regularly confessing, and then that's what I think actually cr- turns us into people who are ready to bear witness. Mm. Which is really what I think the crux of Second Corinthians chapter five is, when it's like, "He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God." We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though he is making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God, right? Like it puts Jesus in the center of the story. And right now what's happening is we've centered ourselves and culture has centered itself and America has centered itself. And there's a movement that's happening, which is called the church that is consistently decentering us and centering Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if, I, I think people, like, what does Jesus offer? He's, uh, he offers a personal, relational, and systemic shalom that we desperately need. Amen, man. Amen. hope that all makes sense. Yeah, man. I love um, the connections that you are able to make for the folks who are, you know, consuming this book between how, you know, practical the gospel is in the outworking of us looking at all of these societal issues and looking at how we're affected by it. So yeah, man, I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a, the devil, like they say like, Oh, like the, the greatest lie the devil ever told was that he wasn't real. Right. Um, 
similarly, I think the, the, the worst lie that we can believe is that the gospel isn't relevant. And if we can make it irrelevant, then it loses its power and practicality. And that's what white American folk religion does to the church. Mm-hmm. You don't need to pray. You need to go to the hospital. You don't need, and people should go to the doctor. I'm not saying pray and don't go to the doctor. That's not what I'm saying. But like, it's like, you, like oh, you don't need to, to fast and seek the Lord. Like you need to like network and make connections. Like, and yeah. I'm not saying that networking and connecting is, not, is bad. It's just like, we've, I think we've actually, we pray and then we make plans that aren't impacted by our prayer lives at all. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. That's what's up. So one of the things before we go, I want to commend you for all your personal accounts that you um, you shared with us in the book and um, all mm. the ethnicities you mentioned. Um, wink, wink, uh, Haitian. You know what I mean? Yes, um, yes. But yeah. <laughs> Not boule. But yeah, I thank you so much for um, writing this book and giving us all this back information, especially with those, um, the history points, I thought were very helpful. And I think um, taught me a lot. And I think it's going to teach a lot of people. I think this book is going to teach a lot of people. And I think it's going to be very helpful for people to um, unearth things, uh, think about things that they didn't know that they were thinking about, or, and even just help them articulate points that they couldn't do themselves. Like you did that for me a lot. And it was like, oh, that's how I felt. Like, oh, this is what I'm you know, feeling right now. Or um, this is what I know someone's going through right now, but I didn't really know how to speak on it. And so I think this book is going to do that for a lot of people and also start a lot of great conversations and be able to, you know, seriously, hopefully spark change. So yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah. Go out, buy the book. It's available on Amazon. It's the type of book where the moment I read it, it's one of those books where I want to give to like 10 of my friends. You know, you definitely want to, you definitely want to consume this book um, as soon as possible, especially in the climate that, that we're in, um, in America in 2019. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate the book, man. Thank y'all for having me on. And uh, I, if, it, if it's possible, I'd love to take your podcast and then share it as like a double post so that more people can listen to yours too. So let's do that if we can. We'll take it. We'll take it. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Great Great, guys. Thanks. Jonathan, take it easy. All right. Bye y'all. All right. Bye.